Welcome to Crossview Radio, weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, last week we began a new podcast series on the modern social justice movement. And today I would like to continue on with uh, that discussion. Uh, And just like most doctrinal statements begin with a statement on authority, that is, uh, bibliology, I want to discuss early on in this series on social justice uh, the issue of authority. And we might ask the question this way, what is authoritative for the woke? Everybody believes in authority uh, in order to validate their beliefs. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote, and he said this, 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority. I believe there's such a place as New York. I have not seen it myself. I could not prove by abstract reasoning that there must be such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. Every historical statement in the world is believed on authority. None of us has seen the Norman Conquest or the defeat of the Armada. None of us could prove them by pure logic as you prove a thing in mathematics. We believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them, in fact, on authority. A man who jibbed at authority in other things, as some people do in religion, would have to be content to know nothing all his life. Even atheists have their own authorities. Uh, American literary theorist Stanley Fish made this clear a few years ago when he commented on an interview uh, of the famous atheist Richard Dawkins. And in this interview, Dawkins was talking about why, in his view, science is more trustworthy than religion. And um, Fish made this observation. He said this, It was at this point that Dawkins said something amazing, although neither he nor anyone else picked up on it. He said, In the arena of science, you can invoke Professor So-and-So's study published in 2008. You can actually cite chapter and verse. And that's the end of the quote. Atheist Richard Dawkins said in this interview that you can look to such and such a scientific study and you can cite chapter and verse. Now, in other words, what Dawkins is doing is he is using a Christian phrase to speak of the authority of the word. So when we want to talk in terms of authority, we will say, okay, in this chapter and verse in the Bible, you have da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, Dawkins is doing that same thing, but he is just citing a different chapter and verse. It's still an authority, and it's his authority, but but it's a different kind of authority. And he's applying this, of course, to these scientific research papers. Stanley Fish Uh, who, by the way, is not a believer, uh, goes on to comment more about this interview. And Fish says this, We still cite chapter and verse. We still operate on trust. But the scripture has changed, or at least in this country, and is now identified with the most up-to-date research conducted by credentialed and secular investigators. The question is, what makes one chapter and verse more authoritative for citing than the other? End quote. And again, Fish is not a believer, but he recognizes here that all people intuitively operate on trust. All people believe in authority. Trust the science is a statement of authority. Stay in your lane 
is a statement committed to a belief in a authority. Even if you don't cite the Bible for your beliefs, you cite something. And whatever you give as a reason for your actions is your authority, or that which is authoritative for you. And this is really what I want to observe on today's podcast. Uh, Last week, we saw an introduction to the modern idea of social justice, and today I want to see what the source of authority is for the woke. As Christians, we have the Bible. That's our chapter and verse. What do the woke have? What is their chapter and verse? If they were going to cite something authoritative, if they were going to say, we ought to believe and behave in this way because of, what would that because of be? What is their source of authority? And I'd like to begin this by going as close to the source as I can, and I want to cite an example from the woke themselves. What are they themselves saying is authoritative? And of course, the go-to source on all things critical race theory is the book Critical Race Theory by Richard Delgado. I want to read to you a little section of what Delgado says about this. He says, quote, a final element concerns the notion of a unique voice of color. Remember that phrase, unique voice of color. He continues, the voice of color thesis holds that because of their different histories and experiences with oppression, black, American Indian, Asian, and Latino writers and thinkers may be able to communicate to their white counterparts matters that the whites are unlikely to know, end quote. Okay, so he has here as uh, his authority, or at least one of his authorities, is a unique voice of color. And because of uh, Delgado's unique voice of color uh, theory here, Vody Bauckham has coined the term ethnic Gnosticism. And of course, as you know, Gnosticism refers to secret or hidden knowledge. Uh, Someone who is a Gnostic says, I have access to this hidden knowledge that nobody else knows about, but I can access it myself. And so Vody calls it ethnic Gnosticism. He says this, quote, Ethnic Gnosticism, then, is the idea that people have special knowledge based solely on their ethnicity. This is a hallmark of both critical race theory and its predecessor, critical theory, end quote. Okay, Gnosticism, secret hidden knowledge. Ethnic Gnosticism, then, is a reference to a secret or hidden knowledge that is accessible only to the oppressed, specifically uh, oppressed minorities. And so we need to listen to them because they have this particular hidden knowledge. Uh, uh, Another quote here uh, from uh, Georg Lukács, who was a Hungarian Marxist philosopher of the Frankfurt School. He wrote this in the 20th century. He says, quote, of course, the knowledge yielded by the standpoint of the proletariat stands on a higher scientific plane objectively. It does, after all, apply a method that makes possible the solution of problems which the greatest thinkers of the bourgeoisie era have vainly struggled to find, and in its substance, it provides the adequate historical analysis of capitalism, which must remain beyond the grasp of bourgeoisie thinkers, uh, end quote. Okay, notice that first part of that quote that I read for his statement of authority. He says, knowledge yielded by the standpoint of the proletariat. That is a statement of authority. 
Tara Yoso, professor at the University of California, Riverside, writes this in her journal article from 2019 entitled, Whose Culture Has Capital? She says, quote, the centrality of experiential knowledge, CRT recognizes that the experiential knowledge of people of color is legitimate, appropriate, and critical to understanding, analyzing, and teaching about racial subordination. CRT draws explicitly on the lived experiences of people of color by including such methods as storytelling, family histories, biographies, scenarios, parables, and so on, end quote. Okay, here's the statement. Experiential knowledge of people of color. It is the experience, the knowledge of experience of specifically people of color. Okay, so Delgado calls it, we're looking at different quotes from from people who are all describing the same thing, but maybe just from slightly different angles. Delgado calls it the voice of color thesis. Um, Bauckham, by the way, I assume you know this, but Bauckham is not a proponent of this. He is writing against this, but he has just coined a term uh, phrase. He he calls it ethnic Gnosticism. Uh, Luke Ash and Yoso have their own similar descriptions. Uh, and others have referred to it as standpoint epistemology. Owen Strand describes it this way. He says, quote, uh, and, and again, Owen Strand is writing uh, against standpoint epistemology. So you have Owen Strand and Vody Bauckham who are writing against this. Um, and then you have these other writers who are, are for it. But uh, Owen Strand says, quote, reason must be opposed by personal narratives driven by a belief in standpoint epistemology, the view that one's minority status gives one a unique ability to see truth that privileged peoples necessarily cannot comprehend, end quote. So uh, standpoint epistemology is the idea that uh, your minority status gives you a unique ability to see truth. Uh, furthermore, Bauckham sees this as coming from radical feminism and being borrowed by CRT proponents. He says, quote, specifically the debt CRT owes to radical feminism is the towering influence of standpoint epistemology, the hallmark of ethnic Gnosticism, end quote. And Bauckham is correct that much of modern standpoint epistemology has its roots in feminism. Just consider this. Sandra Harding, a feminist scholar, wrote this in the 80s about standpoint epistemology. She says, quote, each oppressed group can learn to identify its distinctive opportunities to turn an oppressive feature of the group's conditions into a source of critical insight about how the dominant society thinks and is structured. Thus, Standpoint theories map how a social and political disadvantage can be turned into an epistemological, scientific, and political advantage, end quote. Okay? This is coming straight from the source. Okay? Sandra Harding believes that oppressed people have unique access to truth that others do not have. And, of course, this goes back even further than this. Sandra Harding was writing in 2004, but there are deeper roots in Marxism. Standpoint epistemology has its roots in the Marxist-inspired idea of double consciousness. Eric Mason references, references this in his book, Woke Church, and he talks about W.E.B. Du Bois and his book, The Souls of Black Folk. Now, in that book, which is written in 1903, 
Uh, du Bois references the fact that the black man has access to more information than the average American. And the basic gist of his argument is that a slave master knows what it is like to be a master in a master-driven world, and the slave, on the other hand, knows what it's like to be a slave in a master-driven world. So he has, uh, the slave has a double consciousness. He has access to more information than the master. And of course, this is the same for any oppressor-victim paradigm. This is kind of how they are all viewed, is that the uh, victim has access to double the information. And so let's just stand back here for a second in case uh, this is a lot of information. All of these quotations and things are just designed to show you that there are different terms for really all expressing the same uh, mindset. And so let me just summarize these here. You have Richard Delgado, the author of Critical Race Theory, calls it the voice of color thesis. Uh, Vodi Bauckham calls it ethnic Gnosticism. Uh, Georg Lukács, the Marxist philosopher, calls it knowledge yielded by the standpoint of the proletariat. You have Terrioso, the professor, um, who says uh, it is experiential knowledge of people of color. You have uh, many people, uh, one that I've quoted today, Owen Strand, calls it standpoint epistemology. Sandra Harding, the feminist, calls it standpoint theories. W.E.B. Du Bois calls it double consciousness. Some have referred to it as emotivism. Uh, certainly it is postmodern, uh, or there is a sense of relativism in it as well. And finally, I will give you my own term for it, and uh, I personally refer to this standpoint epistemology, voice of color thesis, ethnic Gnosticism, I refer to it as the woke magisterium, uh, the woke magisterium. So what does all of this mean? Uh, epistemology is the study of knowledge. And if you add the word standpoint to the beginning of that, then what it means simply is that a person has access to knowledge depending on their social location. So because I am a white, Christian, uh, cisgender, heterosexual male, according to the woke, I am the farthest away from having access to truth. And someone who is more oppressed is much closer to having access to truth. This is standpoint epistemology. I have a different social location than another person, and therefore uh, they, assuming they are part of the oppressed class, ha they have more access to truth than I do. So since the woke culture typically views blacks, women, homosexuals, transgenders as being oppressed, we need to be quiet and listen to their voices because they have access to truth. This is the case even if individuals within these classifications are not themselves oppressed. All that matters is that they identify as a member of the oppressed class. That's cultural Marxism. They don't have to uh, be uh, oppressed themselves. They just have to be someone who is in that class of, some, uh, of the oppressed. 
And so let's look a little bit uh, for a few minutes here at what I'm going to call the woke magisterium in practice. And I want to give you a couple of examples of this so we can see this being played out in the culture around us. And there's just going to be, I don't know how many I have here, maybe six or so uh, different examples that I kind of jotted down uh, to look through where we can see this in our culture. The first one is a a personal one for me. I was recently invited to participate in a pastor's roundtable discussion, and the topic of discussion was social justice, wokeness, and racism. And one of the first days that we were at this roundtable, we were asked to go around the group, and everyone was going to define racism. And um, I... Personally, this will this is a side note here. I hopefully plan on doing this in a future episode. I don't personally like the word racism because the Bible makes it clear that we are all one race. Um, so there are not multiple races. There are multiple ethnicities, but not multiple races. It's just the human race. Anyway, with that critique aside, uh, we were all asked to define racism, and uh, as we were going around the table, one uh, individual at the table. Uh, said, he said, uh, he said, I wonder how appropriate it is for people who are in the majority to define racism. He says, I'm a white middle-class male. I'm educated. I don't come from money, but if I did, I would be at the top of the world. He says, I check most of the boxes in terms of majority all the way through. And I wonder if it's appropriate I mean, my natural impulse would be to tip the scales of that definition in my favor. Any way that I would define racism, especially because of what I have learned in relationship with others, would be I would be naturally, naturally skeptical of it and would want to hear from people outside of positions or situations of majority to understand what racism might actually be. Okay, this is standpoint epistemology to a T. He is saying... I am in a position of uh, majority because I am a white man, and therefore I don't have the right to define what racism is. And as we were going around the room, finally it was my turn, and when it was my turn, I defined it from the Bible, and I used the term ethnic partiality. I think it's more biblical um, to use that, and I used some Bible passages, and I was critiqued for this, um, for doing this, and one of the pastors said to me, it's, it sounds like you just kind of want to define everything from the Bible. Do, do you see the, t- the tension, go- the, the, the issue here? This is an issue of authority, and I am citing what is authoritative for the Christian and then all of a sudden, it's, what are you doing? You can't quote from the Bible in here. What are you, what are you talking about? Um, but but the, 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 the interesting part is that, and this, by the way, was the same pastor, the one who said, I can't define racism, and said, oh, you can't use the Bible, essentially. Um, both are, are statements of authority. He is saying, the authority for me is oppressed people, and I am saying the authority for me is the Bible. And that really is what's going on, is where it's coming to a head, is where can we find truth? The epistemology of the woke is answering the same question. We're both trying to say, where can we find truth? Uh, What the Christian is saying is that we need to go to Scripture. What the woke are saying is that we need to go to people's experiences 
specifically the experiences of the oppressed. This is, by the way, a hallmark of postmodern thought. Postmodernism says what is truth for you might not be truth for me. Truth is ultimately relative. We have to go to people's individual experiences. That's my first example. Second example is uh, of standpoint epistemology or the voice of color thesis or ethnic Gnosticism or the uh, idol of experience or postmodernism or as I'm calling it, the woke magisterium can be found in a recent tweet from Beth Moore. A couple years ago, Beth Moore tweeted the following. She said, it's way past time to inventory our personal libraries, to add to them where they are woefully lacking, and to quit being clay theologically shaped by only one shade of hands. This needs to be over. It has failed and robbed us. For starters, Jesus didn't have white hands, end quote. Beth is advocating that our theological libraries would have, I presume, an equal distribution of authors by the color of their skin. That is standpoint theory. Um, She does not say we ought to have authors uh, that are giving us truth. She simply says we ought to be shaped by different skin colors. Okay, that's the second example. Third example, and I hate to give this third example because I personally love Logos Bible software and use it every single day. Um, I do all of my sermon prep in it. I do all of my study in it. But in this regard... Logos Bible Software has gone woke. Uh, They recently, this might be a couple years ago now, I don't remember exactly when this was, but it's within the last two or three years. Recently they had a sale of books by black authors, and they had this advertisement. It simply says, God's Word, Black Voices. This is an invitation into what is referred today as the black experience. It is ethnic Gnosticism as, at its finest. It is Delgado's voice of color thesis. Now, of course, what we're not saying is that we have nothing to learn from black voices or that we ought to suppress black voices. That's not at all what we're saying. What we are saying is that if we are going to learn truth about the Bible, it's going to be because we are told what is true. It's, it has no, uh, someone's skin color has no bearing on whether or not they are telling the truth or not. Black people lie, white people lie, black people tell the truth, white people tell the truth. All that matters is that we are going to the authority of the word. All right, next example, um, microaggressions. In 2007, uh, a Columbia University Teachers College professor wrote an article discussing microaggressions. And of course, you've probably heard of this concept today. And I want to talk to you about this from the perspective of the authors of the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. This is a book that I do plan on quoting uh, quite a bit throughout this series. Um, It is not written by Christians, but it is very insightful uh, on what is going on. In fact, there are two uh, very uh, liberal individuals um, acknowledging the errors in their own camp. And so here's what they say about microaggressions. Um, and the, uh, the teacher was uh, Daryl Wing Sue, and they quote about what he did. It says, quote, Unfortunately, when Sue included unintentional slights, And when he defined the slights entirely in terms of the listener's interpretation, he encouraged people to make misperceptions. 
He encouraged them to engage in emotional reasoning, to start with their feelings and then justify those feelings by drawing the conclusions that someone else has committed an act of aggression against them, end quote. Okay, so what is basically going on here is that today, in general, perceptions of harm are interpreted as an intent to harm. This is the opposite of how we used to think. C.S. Lewis comments on this and says, I am not angry except perhaps for a moment before I come to my senses with a man who trips me up by accident. I am angry with a man who tries to trip me up even if he does not succeed. And I think Lewis is correct here on how most reasonable people would understand this to be. If someone tries to trip you, but they don't succeed, you're going to be angry at them because they had an intent to harm you. If someone has their feet uh, out in the aisle way and they trip you and it was an accident, you don't get mad at them. Oh, it's an accident. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. Instead, today, people are encouraged to interpret their perceptions as reality. Perception is reality for us. Uh, They are not encouraged to evaluate their perceptions against the truth. They are not encouraged to evaluate whether their perceptions are accurate. People today are encouraged to believe their intuitions and their perceptions. Your perceptions are, according to our modern culture, truth. If I perceive that you hurt me, then you did actually hurt me. There's no room for, are you sure that they meant it that way? Are you sure that you're not misunderstanding? Uh, Can we talk about this? No room for that today because perception is reality. Next example of this in our culture is uh, in the world of mathematics. Uh, USA Today posted an article uh, called, Is Math Racist? And the Washington Post also posted an article called, Racism in Our Curriculums Isn't Limited to History, It's in Math Too. Now, in varying degrees, uh, these articles, and there's more of them, These articles are undermining math by attacking objective truth. One of the big things to remember about this current movement, uh, the woke magisterium, is that it is uh, saturated in postmodernism. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is relative. What is truth for you is truth for you. What's truth for me is truth for me. And so you will notice again and again in these culture wars that are going on right now is that there is an undermining of absolute and objective truth. It is fascinating to see, then, that G.K. Chesterton, writing in the early 20th century, made this prediction, quote, fires will be kindled to testify that two and two make four. Swords will be drawn to prove that leaves are green in summer, end quote. Wokeism today, as a worldview, is fundamentally concerned with their right to define truth. They will define truth. According to and I'll give a quote here as an example, the Equitable Math Toolkit, they say, quote, upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers perpetuate objectivity as well as fear of open conflict, end quote. So they are saying that you cannot uphold the idea in mathematics that there is always right and wrong answers. And of course, one must eventually get around to asking the authors of the Equitable Math Toolkit whether this statement itself is objectively true. But more relevant to the point at hand is that you are being summoned to accept their authority. Why should you believe that 2 plus 2 might equal 5? Because they said so. And this was, of course, one of the themes in 1984 
where Orwell wrote, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. And what we learn here is a simple yet profound truth. You can have true authority or you can have false authority, but you cannot have no authority. If you jump aboard the woke magisterium train, you have confirmed that you too love authority, man's, not God's. It is a deranged authority where the rules can't stay the same for more than 24 hours. And so long, uh, as long as you fail to repent, you're the fool. You're being played like a fiddle. Next example, ignoring the law of non-contradiction. There is something more nefarious at work here. Relativism has a pragmatic value. What is that value? If you deconstruct the idea of a universal invariant absolute standard, then you make it exponentially easier to manipulate people. What is so exhausting about wokeism is that you wake up every morning and you have to figure out what to believe all over again. The priests of wokeism, the media, are constantly informing you on what the narrative is that day. If you're okay contradicting yourself, then you're going to be much easier to manipulate. Those with no integrity are much easier to corral. Don't miss the significance of this weakness of standpoint theories. Standpoint theories must affirm conflicting and contradicting truth. What happens when the experiences of two black people or two oppressed people uh, contradict one another? We have to eventually ask, whose experience? Uh, there are blacks like Vody Bauckham who buck the system and don't fit the narrative. And then this whole thing breaks down. Now, keep in mind that the woke generally are unconcerned with contradictions. Congresswoman AOC made this clear in her interview with 60 Minutes when she said, quote, I think there's a lot of people more concerned about being precisely, factually, and semantically correct than about being morally right, end quote. Here, AOC introduces the possibility of contradiction, that it is possible that something could be semantically correct, but not morally correct. And she seems completely unconcerned about that contradiction. It would seem then that in general, one of the characteristics of our current culture is that people are not very concerned with resolving contradictions. This is another hallmark of postmodernism. In the postmodern mindset, there is no effort to be consistent. Why? Because the narrative is greater than truth for the woke. This makes dialogue, of course, nearly impossible in today's modern culture. How do you communicate with people who don't love the truth? How do you dialogue with people who are okay contradicting themselves? And of course, I've had this experience myself in talking to those who are postmodern and those who are woke, is that there is no interest in trying to resolve any contradictions. It is okay to live that way. You see, they undermine epistemology and wear us out with a constantly changing narrative. This is what happens when you elevate experience to the level of truth. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves now is simply this. What rescues us from this intellectual chaos? And of course, the answer to this unequivocally is the Bible. It should be stated here very clearly that the Christian believes not in standpoint epistemology, but in a revealed epistemology. This is a crucial distinction. 
This means that the Christian believes knowledge is revealed to us by God, specifically in the Bible. Standpoint epistemology says truth comes from where you are in your social location, the experience of oppressed peoples. The Christian says truth comes from the Bible, revealed epistemology. And of course, we can cite a few passages here uh, in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Okay, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's truth in God. 1 Corinthians 1, 19 through 20, It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is absolute. It is God's word. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It is all, it begins and ends with God. Colossians 2, 3-4, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The fact that you could be deluded by these other arguments shows that Scripture itself is the only authority. Colossians 2, 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We could... Uh, say, an example of being taken captive by philosophy, uh, according to human tradition, would be the woke magisterium. There is not, then, a special knowledge reserved for the oppressed or for the woke. Truth is accessible in Scripture, and furthermore, truth is absolute, not relative. This is crucial. For the Christian, truth is absolute. It is invariant. It is universal. It is objective. Not so for the woke. They claim, and by the way, truth still is true for them. Uh, it, they are living in a Christian world, even though they deny that. Uh, but they do deny that. They say truth is not universal, is not objective. For the Christian, a white person can be right or wrong. A black person can be right or wrong. The standard is without, not within. We believe that facts must correspond to reality, and if not, then it's false. We don't judge the truth or falseness of statements based on whether they are shaped by color, but whether they are shaped by truth. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 10 says that those who are perishing are those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The issue here, then, that is at stake is that people do not love the truth. Why? Because truth comes from God and people don't love God. People would rather follow their experience. People would rather follow the zeitgeist. If you want to know what contributed to this mindset, look no further than Disney. They popularize the whole follow-your-own-heart business that wrecks society and wrecks culture and wrecks lives. Disney basically popularized Rousseau in that he saw culture as corrupting and self as good. And so you have an entire generation not concerned about being right, but about feeling right. They fail to understand the deceptiveness of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. And they fail to understand the need to lean on the Lord instead of our own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. 
What needs to be understood here is that this movement is one piece of the puzzle in an effort by our culture to undermine reason and rationality. We have bought into the lie, even as Christians, that it's more important to be sentimental than truthful, more important to be emotional than rational. When your wife asks you if that dress makes her look fat, you err on the side of telling a falsehood rather than making your wife upset. Well, apply that on a bigger scale and you have real societal problems. Here's a fascinating observation from the book Idols for Destruction. It's a little bit lengthier quote, so hang with me here. Quote, Telling the truth is more fundamental than all other tasks. The Christian writers who have made the greatest impact on the pagan world of the 20th century, people like Chesterton, Whale, Lewis, and Sayers, were more than intelligent, able, and learned. They were bold. Rather than begging the world to believe, they told it the truth. Like that of Christ, their speech was full of hard sayings. In contrast, defenses of the faith like Bishop Robinson's Honest to God, worry that the world is no longer religious and think that the solution is to change the gospel so it's easier to believe. Instead, they make it not worth believing. Apologetics should never be apologetic. If our concern for truth is paramount, then we should refuse to give sentiment the place accorded it by rival systems. The enthronement of emotional response as the center of human concern turns one inward. But introspection fails to stabilize the emotion. One becomes weary seeking replays of emotional of an emotional experience that returns only sporadically, if at all. Continued disappointment makes for cynicism. Sentimentality destroys truth. It recognizes that truth is often hard and therefore tries to soften it. Sentimentality rules many of the 19th century hymns that predominate it in so many 20th century hymnals. Sentimental lies deceive people about reality and induce guilt when hard times come, thereby weakening both faith and will. Christians must rid themselves individually and corporately of sentimentality because it refuses to see the truth. Corporate worship must be true to biblical statements and to observed reality, or people will come to see it correctly, or people will come to see correctly that the teachings of the church do not jive with their experience and so become disenchanted with them, end quote. But our culture, as we know, is infatuated with perception, with a facade, with a mirage, with self. This kind of epistemology is ultimately destructive to the culture. Our society believes perception is reality. You accidentally offend someone and they interpret it as aggression. You can literally make truth be whatever you want it to be. When a culture does this and they embrace standpoint epistemology, the consequences are insane. What if someone publicly declares that you were aggressive against them even if you were not? Society believes that it is truth even if it isn't truth. You see the problem here? This is exactly what's going on with the Believe All Women movement. Women, according to liberation theology, are oppressed. Therefore, according to standpoint epistemology, they have a voice of truth in the culture. And therefore, if a woman says she was attacked, who are you to question that? You can't distinguish truth from error in this kind of a fantasy world. If experience equals truth, then there is no truth anymore. Thus, you have, in our current culture, the erosion of trust, the erosion of truth, the erosion of unity. Who gets to define truth is the million-dollar question. To buy into wokeism is to buy into wokeism's source of authority, namely the experience and narrative of oppressed peoples. 
I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. To embrace wokeism is to undermine biblical authority. Where does truth come from? From God's word or oppressed people's? That is the question. That is the center question that we have to wrestle with. And this is ultimately the issue at stake. Will you believe God's word or will you believe man's word? That's always been the issue right from the Garden of Eden. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.